Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 7 of the podcast. I'm John McAlevey. Although this podcast is mainly for and about folks like me who have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, it is really for anyone who just wants to be inspired. And speaking of inspired, did you have a chance to listen to my last show, starring the great Jen French? Well, if not, you can find it along with each and every one of my past episodes by logging on to www.quadcast.org. And now I'm excited to get started on today's show. My guest, Amanda Pariseau, is the recent recipient of the Adam Taliaferro Foundation's Courage Award. Adam, you may recall, was injured back in September 2000 while making a tackle for his Penn State Nittany Lions at The Ohio State University. He also joined me for an episode of this very podcast back in Season 1. My good friends Aaron and Rich Van Treese happened to meet Amanda at the Foundation's annual dinner this past year, and they told me that she is a guest that I just had to have on. Well, guess what, fellas? Today is the day. When you look up the word ironic in the dictionary, one of the definitions is, quote, coincidental and unexpected. To say that the situation Amanda finds herself in today is ironic would be an understatement. How so, you ask? Well, following this brief timeout for a PSA from Canine Companions, Amanda is here to tell us. And that, my friends, is next. This is my new best friend, Esther. She might look like any normal, playful puppy, but Esther's being raised to become a Canine Companions for Independence Assistance Dog for a person with a disability. To get there, she needs lots of loving care and attention, plenty of exercise, and good eating habits so that she can live a long and healthy life for her future family. And she needs to spend tons of time socializing, learning basic commands like sit and stay, and taken to fun places with lots of distractions so that she can learn to cope in every situation. All of this will prepare Esther for more professional training to become a real assistance dog and a life helping a person with a disability to live more independently. Are you ready to open your heart and home for 18 months to a puppy like Esther? To find out more about becoming a canine companion for Independence Puppy Raiser or about other volunteer opportunities, visit cci.org or call 1-800-572-BARK. Raise a puppy, change a life. You can make a world of difference in the life of a person with a disability. Remember, you can find the Quadcast, your weekly 30 to 45-minute session of OT and PT for the soul, on a whole host of hosts. Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Podchaser, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. Without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce my guest, the aforementioned Amanda Pariso. Welcome, and thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be here. I must say that I got your name from some dear friends of mine, the Van Trees family. Uh, Rich, the father, called me up and said that uh, when they went to the Adam Taliaferro uh, awards dinner uh, a month or so back. They sat with this lovely young, young woman who won the Courage Award. And he said, John, she'd be perfect for your show. And so that's how this all came together. I reached out um, and here we are today. But usually, Amanda, what I like to do with my shows is begin at the beginning. So why don't you tell us, where did you grow up and what were some things you enjoyed doing as a young person? So I grew up in New Jersey. I'm from Tom's River, New Jersey, which is 
close to the shore. Um, and I grew up there um, until I went to college and I loved, I'm such a beach person. So I loved going to the beach in the summer. That was a favorite pastime of mine. Um, and I started playing tennis um, in elementary school. And that is something that I really took pride in. Um, I was an athlete and in throughout high school, I was on varsity tennis and I also played lacrosse. Um, but tennis was something that was really um, my biggest hobby growing up. Yeah. A jock, right? Yeah. And um, after during college and thereafter, I was always the one that woke up at 5 a.m. to do the, you know, whatever, six in the morning um, class, you know, athlete, you know, gym class that was going on or spin class. Um, my friends always joke about how I was always probably, you know, at the gym when they're probably coming back from the bars and stuff. Oh, right. Yeah. You were doing more before 9 a.m. than they would do all day, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. So how about uh, as you're making your way through high school and college, you decide to major in occupational therapy. I must tell you that growing up, I had no idea what occupational therapy was. All you hear about is PT, PT, PT. Uh, and I didn't find out what OT was until, unfortunately, I had my spinal cord injury. But tell us, what was it about the field of occupational therapy that drew your interest, drew your interest? Yeah, I, I never heard of it until college and um, throughout high school and college during the summers, I worked as a camp counselor and I had the opportunity to um, meet and work one on one with this amazing young boy who um, had um, high, um, had uh, autism. So not knowing much about about it, I did a ton of research after he was enrolled to see, you know, what we can do to make this this child successful in camp. And, you know, I spent my summers making sure he felt included. And I thought to myself, there's got to be a career where I can work with people like this and do what I've been doing at the camp. And after a quick Google search, I realized occupational therapy was was my calling. That's amazing. And then, so how did you settle on Thomas Jefferson University? Did they have the program that uh, you researched and that you were interested in? Um, so I went to University of Delaware for my undergrad. And while this happened while I was in my, my undergrad and I researched some schools and at the time there weren't a lot of occupational therapy schools, um, but I went to Philadelphia and there are a few in the area. Um, and when I interviewed for Thomas Jefferson university, I, I really loved their program. I loved their campus in center city. I thought, um, their, the professors that I met were so welcoming. So that's how I chose Jefferson. Okay. And so you graduated from uh, University of Delaware and then went on to Thomas Jefferson. How long was it, because I see you earned your master's in OT at the time, how long was that? A couple more years? That was another, an additional two full years after um, undergraduate. Okay. Okay. And then after you graduate from Thomas Jefferson, do you go right into the workforce? Do you start working there um, at the at the university and the hospital there? 
I actually moved down to Virginia. My sister, um, she lived, one of my older sisters lives down in Virginia. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to explore other parts of, you know, this country, experience different settings. So I lived down there for a few years and worked at a hospital. Um, but yeah, I jumped right into it. I was so excited to start working. Um, I remember I was like one of the first people in my class to get a job interview while we were still having classes in the before graduation. And I was just so excited to get started. Oh, I can imagine, you know, you're ready to go. You have your degrees, you have your master's and let's go. Or you have your, uh, yeah, yeah, let's go. How about, I see that early on um, you did most of your work with older adults and those who have had, who had had traumatic brain injuries. Had you worked with individuals who had spinal cord injuries as well? In the in the hospital i would work with some some patients with spinal cord injuries it not very um the hospital i worked at wasn't at the time wasn't uh didn't have too many uh patients that had that high level of care needed they were often transported to a different hospital so didn't really have too much um patient time with, with those with spinal cord injuries. And as I began to have more of an interest in traumatic brain injury, I, I solely worked in traumatic brain injury and really didn't work with, um, any other type of diagnoses. Okay. Okay. Tell us now, Amanda, I hate to bring it up to you, but May 19, 2021, if you could please take us through what you remember before, during, and after the day that would change the course of your life. Yeah. May 19th, 2021. I remember it being a beautiful spring day. My, it was a Wednesday and my best friends and I are on a kickball team and we play every Wednesday. So I remember, I remember the day getting ready for the game. I remember um, I remember thinking about all the work I had to do the next day because I was teaching summer classes. Um, and at the end of playing our game, we always sat in the park, the playground park, and caught up with each other on how our weeks were going. And while we were sitting in the park after one of our kickball games that summer or that spring day, we started to hear shots um, firing bullets, firing in our close vicinity. Um, growing up in the city, you hear these shots, but they, they're so far away and it doesn't, you don't really think about it. You don't think that you're unsafe, but when you hear them as close as I heard them, you knew some you're in trouble. And I just remember watching my friends who were standing just drop to the ground for to cover. Right. Um, and as soon as I saw that happen, I felt a sharp sting into my right side, like my trunk. And I fell backwards off of the bench I was sitting on. Mm. I, um, I, remained conscious this, the whole time that this happened. I remember every minute. I remember my, one of my best friends coming to 
find the where the wound was in my back to to help hold, stop it from bleeding. Right. And I remember watching other friends lean over me, just trying to get me to calm down, but to continue speaking to them just to know that I'm still, you know, alert and conscious. Mm -hmm. They just kept me going, tried to keep my mind off of it. Um, and being an OT, I knew once I fell backwards, I knew exactly what happened. I knew that when I fell backwards, I lost all control of my legs and I knew I was paralyzed. Mm. I remember that moment. And I remember thinking to myself that, this is, I, I knew in my head it was a complete injury. I didn't need the doctors to tell me later how terrible it is. Mm. Um, I knew in that moment it wasn't, it was going to be a long road. And um, did you feel, I know um, a lot of the folks that I speak with who unfortunately like us have had SEIs will tell me that they didn't necessarily feel pain. They just felt numbness. I mean, I, re I can recall, I just felt completely numb from the, from the level of my injury down. Did you, was there pain involved? Was there numbness? What did you feel? You're, you're absolutely right. I didn't feel the pain except for whatever that sharp in initial feeling from the bullet was that didn't really hurt. It was, it was like a whoosh yep. of numbness. Yeah. It just like swept and took over my my legs, mm. but yeah, you're you're right. It, and that wasn't painful. The only painful part started to happen when, um, there the damage to other things. Like I had damage to my diaphragm, and um, I had a splenectomy, so I had like damage to other parts of my organs and my body, and that's that's the part that was painful. The part where I couldn't breathe yeah. um, really well because my diaphragm was damaged and everything that was happening. And um, yeah, the breathing, breathing and pain started. I remember the pain did start to shoot up when I was in the ambulance. Oh, I can imagine. And did the bullet leave your body again? Did it lodge in your, in your cord? I mean, did what happened in that respect? The bullet, um, remained in my core and my body. Um, but when I was in McGee rehab, maybe like my week four, I started to feel something on my left side, like kind of above between my skin and my ribs and I'm feeling it and it's hard. And my, I, I get the nurse in and we're feeling it. And we realize it's the bullet. Oh my gosh. Um, starting to like make its way out, I suppose. Um, but because of the location of where it was, it hurt a lot to roll onto my left side or sleep on that side. Sure. Um, do ADLs that involve that side. So um I had to get it removed. So I ended up getting a bulletectomy. Oh. God. There's an actual term, a bulletectomy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Oh, how morbid is that? It's terrible. Oh my gosh. So now after um you get to the hospital and they figure out what's going on, what did what did the doctors tell you initially and what was the ultimate diagnosis? Like what is the level of your injury? 
so my ultimate diagnosis, um, I have an Asia A uh, complete T11 spinal cord injury. Okay. So um, at the doctors came in and they did the Asia exam. Um, I I was at Temple University is where I was um, taken to. Okay. So when I was at Temple, they did an Asia exam twice. Um, and because I don't have any um, type of reflex, um, I don't have like the bowel or the anal like reflexes yeah. that labeled me in Asia A. Okay. Yeah, that those Asia tests, aren't they the worst? I hate that where they take out the the pin and the, the Q-tip and they say, okay, is it the same or different? Same or different? I'm like, oh man, how many times have I done that over the years? Yeah, yeah. Uh, not my favorite thing. So Amanda, after all of that, where did you rehab? And I have to tell you, I could not have made it as far as I did without tremendous support from family and friends. How important were they to your recovery? They were everything and still are everything to this day. Um, so after Temple, I was discharged to McGee Rehab in Philly. Um, I was there for about two and a half months. Um, during that time, um, I had um, friends and family in. It was so hard, though, because we, it was 2021, the summer of 2021, and there were still a lot of COVID restrictions and visitor policies in place. Sure. So when I was at Temple, I was only to have one visitor there the entire time. Mm. Um, but then when I went to Mickey, I was able to have two visitors in and out. Um, but the, the amount of cards, the amount of messages and the amount of people that just reached out to me during that time, um, initially in t at Temple and at McGee, it really helped me to keep going and fighting to be the same person that I was just with a spinal cord injury. Yeah. Yeah. It's that support that you feel behind you when you're in therapy that sort of gives you that push to keep going. Wasn't that the case? Yeah. Yeah. They pushed me to do a little bit more, you know, work a little bit harder, get up out of bed when I didn't really want to. Those little pushes helped in my healing. No doubt. Now, when I looked up occupational therapy in the dictionary, here was the definition I found. It says, quote, OTs evaluate and treat people who have injuries, illnesses, or disabilities. They help clients meet goals to develop, recover, improve and maintain skills needed for daily living and working, end quote. How ironic was it for you now to be in position to need all of this? And did it almost feel like a bad episode of The Twilight Zone? That's the only way to describe it as an awful nightmare. I felt it just felt so ironic and just felt so strange to be laying in the ICU and having the physical therapist and occupational therapist walk in and do the same interview, the same welcoming to, to me that I have always given to my patients working in as an OT in the hospital setting. So it just felt so weird and, um, you know, it's hard not to think about being an OT and 
trying to think of OT things that I need as a person with an SDI. It's like, I'm always thinking of OT. So I try and keep actually, I try to turn that part of my brain off because it's really overwhelming and exhausting to always think about that and think about my, how to adapt things. And, um, I, I, I try to let my actual OT is do that job instead of myself because my brain needs that needs to turn off yeah. once in a while. I mean, you need to, you need to grieve a little bit and you need to try and recover. You can't have that, you know, working in the background all the time. And that leads me into my next question. How soon into this new life did it take for the Amanda, the OT to kick in and for you to start, you know, practicing what you'd preached to your patients for all those years? I'm not exactly sure when it clicked to me that I need to be who I am um, and I need to make a change. I think it happened at some point in at McGee when I talked with my recreational therapist. Um, she came into my my room often and she had a therapy dog and that really helped my healing and for me to really adjust. Yeah. The recreational therapy. Now, are you a dog person? Do you, are you a pet person? I am a pet person through and through. I, I have a cat, he's five and I missed him like crazy in the hospital. Mm. So having um, the opportunity to do at pet therapy at Mickey meant everything to me. Well, I have to tell you, I am the uh, recipient of a canine companions dog. I have a a golden lab mix. He's a three year old. His name is Yokin, and he is amazing. Uh, he helps me so much around the house. I drop a lot of things on the floor, as I told you. My arms and hands don't work, so when I drop things on the floor, it's like. It doesn't exist in my world anymore. Mm -hmm. But now that I have this fun, furry, four-legged friend, he picks things up off the floor. He opens doors for me. He, we have a pull on the refrigerator. He opens the fridge and he can turn on lights. And I work twice, uh, two days a week at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation up here in New Jersey. I am the peer mentoring coordinator and Yokin comes with me and we go room to room and I know exactly what you're talking about. He just lightens everybody's mood. When I walk in the room, people who have had, you know, these life altering accidents and they either miss their pets at home or they just need something different than, than a hospital room and a bedpan and all of that stuff. And this adorable dog comes in and the smiles and the tears and it's, it really is cathartic for me and, and the patients as well. Yeah, there's just something about animals. They they don't know. They they look at you like anybody else. They look at me like anybody else. They don't know that you have a disability. They don't know. They're, they're not judging. So it's just so easy to to hold a pet, to pet a, a, your cat and feel like you're not you know, you feel safe. You're, you're, you feel comfortable. You don't feel judged. You're right. It's so true. When I went to pick up Yokin, I had, uh, there were seven people in my graduating class, uh, two of which had CP, um, and a couple of others had MS. 
I was the only one that could walk. And these dogs, they don't see the wheelchair. They don't hear the speech problems. They don't hear any of that. They just are unconditional love. And they just wanted to, they wanted to help. And of course they want their treats because that's what <laughs> makes it all possible. Uh, these treats are, I, I, I can't get over how, just how food driven these, these dogs are. And they, they sent me home with this cute, um, uh, it was like a yearbook and on the cover was a picture of a dog and it had the saying, it says, you look like I need a treat. And it's so, uh, so true. Yeah. I mean, my guy will do anything, but uh, if you hold a treat in front of him, it uh, it moves a little bit faster. So I hear you with uh, with the pets. So Amanda, did you feel as you're starting to settle in that all of your schooling and the experience you gained working as an OT, it gave you an advantage as a patient in this new jersey, uh, in this new journey? Absolutely. I do think that my experience helped me. Um, I understood um, the the therapeutic world, like the, the language, the transfers, the ADLs. I, I knew that I had to you know, be independent and dressing. Like I knew what my goals were going to be. Like I knew everything the OT and PT were going to plan out. So I feel like knowing a step ahead, um, helped me to get better at my transfers, um, dress myself, think of, um, ways to do lower body dressing, um, in a different way that worked for me. So I think it did help. Yeah. You, you kind of knew what the ultimate goal was right down the line. You knew where they wanted to take you. And so um, that kind of gave you a, uh, a leg up on everybody else. Yes. Yeah. And it still does. I still do. I'm, I'm an outpatient PT and um, I've gotten really close with my physical therapist, but he laughs because when I fill out my intake form upon admission for outpatient, I always put, you know, my I write in my goals you know, like a therapist writes them oh, right. exactly in their language. And he laughs. He's like, you make my job so easy. <laughs> <laughs> did you notice, Amanda, did any of the uh, your fellow patients sort of look up to you like, hey, let's go hang with Amanda because she's been around the block and she kind of knows what what this is all about? I like, I think so. I think that other patients in the in the gym, I felt like. um they felt comfortable with me. Um, but honestly, I felt more inspired by, uh, by them and by patients who, um, at, during the, we also had the peer program at rehab and my peer mentor, her name is Nikki, Nikki and Nikki Walsh. And she, she motivated me so much to do more. And she also was into working out and um sports so she and i got along really well so it's it was other people like her that really inspired me i i hope i did the same to other people i'm not sure but i know that i was inspired by so many people myself did uh, did they know that you were an ot i mean maybe they didn't know that that was the case um no i don't really tell people that no i don't unless it comes up. Sure. I don't really tell too many people. Um, I, 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 I think that, you know, when I do talk with the other patients in the gym and stuff, they, they, they can tell I have that 
right. ther- that therapeutic personality. And yeah. I think that's uncomfortable. Do, do you think that the OTs that you, that were working with you at the time, do you think that they treated you any differently knowing that you were in sort of in the fraternity, like you knew what, uh, what they were talking about? I always thought about that. And I don't think that they did. I, my, I, my therapist in, um, at McGee, I remember the first day she came in and I told her straight up, straight up, I go, I was a traumatic brain injury occupational therapist. This is not my wheelhouse. So I'm going to let you do whatever you need to do. So from the very beginning, from that first day, um, you know, I don't, I don't think it was an awkward situation because I put myself in their footsteps, in their shoes, because I've been, I've worked in the hospital and walked into a patient's room and the patient was a physical therapist or um, the mom of an OT and knew exactly. And um, I have been in uncomfortable situations. So I tried to make sure that it wasn't awkward or didn't feel like I might know better or say something that they didn't agree with. Right. Sure. How about has being um, now injured yourself, given you a whole new perspective and respect for those of us who are in the disabled community? Absolutely. I've learned so much about accessibility in the art, in the environment and pain that we we go through um i understand now my patients that i've had in the past what they mean when they talk about pain or what they mean when they talk about you know the feeling of ice pits of nerve pain and i can understand it i can understand that more clearly yeah absolutely and now i understand you're teaching occupational therapy. Tell us about how that came together and where you were doing that. So in 2019, I started working at Thomas Jefferson University, my alma mater, as an assistant professor and the fieldwork coordinator for the students' clinical experiences. Um, So I had always, always loved teaching as an occupational therapist. I, in the clinic, I always loved supervising students. So I knew I wanted to get into teaching at some point. And in the fall of 2019, the opportunity came and I grabbed it. So I still teach full time. It's something I I have a strong passion for. It came at a very good time because I got out of the clinic right before COVID and um, at the time of my injury. So I kind of lucked out that I don't need to worry about working in a clinical setting and having to um, adapt myself for treating patients because I think that would have been very challenging. Sure. How about, so you started teaching OT before your injury. How, after your injury now, are are, are you a different type of a teacher? Is the mindset different um, now that you're sort of on the other side? I mean, what what are you able to now supplement in the teaching um, protocols that you used beforehand? Are you able to do now? 
I do approach my teaching much differently. I find it, I have an advantage in um, story in sharing stories with my students about realistic things that they might encounter in um, the rehab setting with a patient based off of real things I've had. And it could be anything from um, learning how to transfer a patient to how to talk to somebody with a spinal cord injury. So the the different examples I can give students now, I think are so helpful for, for their learning and understanding. Um, and it has given me more patience. I've learned to be more patient with, with my students and have more patience with um, their, the teaching and learning. So I think overall, it, I felt it has been a positive change. Oh, I can imagine that, you know, the students that are signing up for your course, you must have like an overhaul of people that want to take your class because, you know, like when I go in to see patients to introduce our peer mentoring program, I tell them that, you know, it's one thing to to talk to your doctor or to your therapist, even family members or friends, but, you know, they're able-bodied and it's a completely different thing to, to speak to someone who's sort of been there and done that and is walking the walk and talking the talk, sh- shall we say. And to be able to take a course by someone who is, you know, in position to, to dispel so much more uh, information, I would think you have a, a standing room only in your courses. Yeah, we have, uh, my classes are pretty large. And actually one of my, I wanted to mention my goal this fall is to teach uh, one of my classes in my rewalk exoskeleton um, that I had gotten this past year. So I've been training in that. And my goal is to be able to show the students what I've been doing and show them this cool robotic um, system that I own. Oh, that you have one? Oh, that would be cool if you walked into into the uh, classroom one day. Those things are really cool. I got a chance to use one of them probably about a year, year and a half ago, and it really is amazing. Yeah, yeah, I've been using it in rehab, and Jefferson had actually helped support me in obtaining one for personal use. So oh, great. I am so thankful for that. Oh, that is awesome. And how often do you use that? I train with my, um, my best friend's a physical therapist and she comes over my, to my condo and we train about once a week, um, depending on how busy we are, but we're still working on some of the basic skills. So I'm not independent with it just yet. Right. Right. It was, it was interesting for me, um, uh, learning to do it. It's, they have to, it was the whole weight transfer, like onto one leg and then onto the other leg, it will free it up. And it was, it took me a while to kind of figure out how it went. But, um, after I tried it a couple of times, it was, it was really cool. Um, and I can only imagine what it must be like for those, uh, like yourself who don't have the legs, um, to be back up upright again. I mean, just probably standing up again. What does that feel like for you? It feels like a new world. Coming (laughs) home, right? Yeah. It feels like, wow. Yeah. Like this is 
this feels, this is, this is nice. I don't want it to stop, you know? Yeah. I remember. And, and early on, was it, um, did it affect your blood pressure when you were getting up and, and standing up? Did you have to be careful with that? Yeah. When I first started at McGee, um, I remember, you know, they gradually got me on, um, like a tilt table mat to slowly get me, um, up and I, yeah, I, I, my blood pressure, I would get a little lightheaded the first couple of times. Um, but then I started, you know, my body started to regulate and understand what's going on. Right. It adjusts, right? Yeah. Exactly. Also, it's amazing what our bodies are able to figure out in this time of trauma, you know? Yeah, they're amazing. They certainly are. Now, along with uh, the teaching that you're doing, um, I know that you're an advocate for anti-violence programs and improve access- and improved accessibility within the city. Can you give us some examples of how you are making your mark in both of these areas? So for the anti-violence in Philly, um, I, you know, I, you're in New, New Jersey or North Jersey. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure you can understand the violence that's going on in the, um, in our cities and Philly has been, it's been really bad here. Yeah. It's in, and it's rising and teaching and working with kids has always been a passion of mine. So when I see kids and teens getting involved in these, these violent behaviors, it really hurts me to see that. And Mm. so, you know, I work with my uh, students at Jefferson and they do occupation, they do um, field work within anti-violence programming within the city. So I got them involved in, you know, doing work with um, programs that provide teens with alternative um, alternative options for things to do outside of school, um, going on field trips, organizing different, um, you know, games and things that they can play. And so that's one area that I'm working on, um, improving and and within the city and, um, in terms of accessibility, um, I use my wheelchair all around the city. That's my main form of transportation. I don't typically drive. I can, I prefer to roll around the city. So when Mm -hmm. I come across curb cuts and construction sites that have torn up sidewalks, it just gets under my skin. Mm. So I've been working with um, persons that I know in the city who have connections to whether it's the newspaper to get like an expose out or talking to somebody at the mayor's office, uh, the mayor's office on disabilities and talking to them about solutions. It's just getting my voice out and asking questions and demanding answers um, because it just feels disrespectful when I'm commuting to and from work and I can't because of construction around a curb cut and I have to backtrack and it's exhausting having to backtrack because of all of that nonsense. So of course, and this is 2023 and you're still having to deal with this. Yeah. And I do it mostly, I do it, I I do it mostly for other people. I, 
I, I, I do it for me, but I, I do it mostly because I know I can speak up. Yeah. I know I have, um, more power and influence than me, than maybe somebody else in this community who's disabled doesn't. Yes. Sounds like so you've got to, people, Amanda. Yeah. I try to be their voice. <laughs> Yeah. And, and as you said, not only will it help you in the long run, it's going to help so many other folks who have to deal with it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I must say congratulations on, on having been recently honored by the Adam Talia Farrell Foundation with its Courage Award, which is given to individuals who have overcome severe adversity in their lives. What did receiving this honor mean to you? I was speechless when um i received the phone call that i was um that they were nominating me for that award because it it just felt like um the things that i i've done didn't go unnoticed the things that i've been pushing really hard for myself and within the community um it it feels it feels really really good to know that um, people see that and it keeps me motivated to keep going. Yeah. I was lucky enough to have Adam join me for an episode, uh, a couple of years ago. He's an amazing guy, isn't he? He is so, he's inspiring and he's so, he's just so sweet and kind on top of it with all that he's gone through. Um, it's amazing that he, has been doing everything that he's done. And he, like I said, he's inspiring. He's an inspiration to me Yeah, and I know to many others. Yeah. He hasn't forgotten where, where it all started. Um, he is, uh, he gives back to the SCI community as much as he can. And it is really amazing. So that was quite the honor. And I know you had a chance to meet, uh, some friends of mine, the Van Trees family. Um, tell us a little bit about your interaction with Aaron and his family. They were so, I mean, they were so kind and it was so nice to be able to meet them. They um, had so many nice things to say about Adam and his family and about, um, and talking about the, the banquet itself and the, and the foundation and talking about that foundation itself and the money that they've recently been granted. It's amazing. It's, it was a really, it was a pleasure to meet them. Yeah. It's it's tough ways. As I told uh, Aaron's father, Rich, it, it was so um, great for me to to meet him. We've become good friends and, and the family. We just wish we could have met under different circumstances. You know, you meet so many yeah. people uh, through these SCIs that we've had. We, it would be nice to just sort of bump into them on the boardwalk in the summer or something like that, you know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I met so many nice people. Um at the reception. So it was a pleasure. And, um, I know I'm going to be exactly, you said running into them on the boardwalk. I know that we'll be, you know, hopefully seeing them during the summers there. Yeah, that would be great. So what is next for you, Amanda? Are you working on anything at the moment? I'm still going, I'm still continuing my, um, advocacy for, um, accessibility and anti-violence programs in this city. So that's something I'm continuing with. Um, personally, my, my next goal is to do a solo trip somewhere, um, via, via plane. So I've recently did a solo trip, um, on, 
on train. I had never done that before, even before my injury. I never um, did like a trip by myself. Okay. So it felt really freeing to be able to do that. And I want to be able to um, you know, go on a flight and go travel somewhere um, and explore somewhere on my own. Very cool. Any destinations in mind? I am thinking I would love to go to somewhere in Europe. I would love to go to London or Paris or Germany. I've heard so many good things about um, each of those cities and how they're improving their accessibility. So I'm hoping, um, you know, be able to explore those places soon. That would be really cool. You're going to have to keep us posted on that. Yeah, I definitely will. I'm I'm following different like um, Instagram sites that give you know tri- there's so many people with within our community that give good travel tips. So I'm just using them as uh, to help me guide my experience. Excellent. And I will finish up with the question that I ask all of the folks that join me who have had spinal cord injuries themselves, and that is, and it comes from a time where I was waiting with a buddy of mine who I went to high school with. Unfortunately, two good friends. He also had a pretty bad spinal cord injury back in the day. So we were both waiting in the hallway to go in and see our doctors. And and I looked over at him and I said, hey, Tommy, you know, if I could snap my fingers right now and you would be completely able-bodied again, what's the first thing you would do? And I could see the smoke start to pour out of his ears as he's trying to come up with something. And it was cute. Behind me, I heard there was a woman that said, I would go out and garden in my backyard. And then there was a gentleman in front of us that said, I would go into my garage and work on my car. And I thought, wow, this is this is a really good question. It's something that there's really no wrong answer to. And probably everybody that's had one has a different one. And so I pose the question to you, Amanda, if I could snap my fingers right now and you would be completely able-bodied once again, what's the first thing that you would do? Um, it's, it sounds so simple in my, in my head. Um, but one of my best friends, her and her now husband had purchased a house a few days after the shooting. They were actually there during the shooting, but and purchased a home a few days later. And, their home has a rooftop and I've never been able to go up to their rooftop deck and um, doing something like that, going up there, up the steps and going on their roof deck would mean, and just seeing overlooking the city and just being able to have that freedom would be really nice. Yeah. Simple pleasures, right? Yeah. Anything, really anything involving a staircase. I would, I really would like to, do that. Oh, yeah. I can imagine things that we can't do anymore that we wish we could get back. I'm sure you'd probably like to go out and have another kickball game. Yeah, I go and I, I'm a cheerleader now, but you know, my the wheels are spinning in my head on how I can play kickball again. Oh, yeah. Well, who whether knows? it's in the exoskeleton or in my wheelchair, I'm going to do it. Yes, you can. Oh, I tell you, if you have the exoskeleton, you'll be kicking home runs. They're going to say, you're not allowed to play anymore. You're like the all-star. Yeah. Right. Oh, that would be great. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for joining me, Amanda Pariso. Thank you uh, for coming on and uh, telling your very inspirational story. Um, very ironic story. 
um, but one that uh, is is onward and upward with your teaching and with all of those students that you're helping that will make such an imp- impact on folks who have spinal cord injuries in the future. Um, thank you again for coming on, and I appreciate all you do on behalf of the community. Thank you so much, John. Thank you for having me. And just like that, another episode has come and gone. A tip of the cap to the Van Trees family again for the suggestion of having Amanda. Thanks again, as always, to Chris Parapesco at Harbor Picture Company in New York City for mixing the show. And until next time, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I don't care about no wheelchair. I got so much fun.